Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. We had a snake out front of the church, and it was quite the ordeal. Uh, There was all kinds of kids that were totally into it, several anxious mothers, and two excited uh, kids, but uh, it was a black snake, everything's fine, everything's all right, we moved along, it might be under your car, but it's probably okay, probably okay. Uh, It's funny, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about anxiety today. And uh, first, I want to give you an announcement. Tonight is the potluck from 5 to 7 here. Bring your food. We are not providing a main dish, so just add a couple extra spoonfuls there. We're just going to see if this works. And if not, we'll ask your few volunteers to run to McDonald's. Uh, It'll be right here from 5 to 7 tonight uh, in this room. Later on, after the service, we'll get a few people to help us move around chairs and put up tables. That would save us a little bit of time. We'd love to have you. Tonight we're going to be talking about some leadership changes, uh, where we are with the building and the building survey that many of you filled out. We're also going to talk about summer suppers and uh, having fun together this summer. Uh, so I want to encourage you to come. So yes, today we are going to talk a little bit about costly changes. And uh, the thing that comes to mind is something that happened to me a few months ago. I was driving from Cary to Raleigh and I was going down Western Boulevard. I passed this stoplight, and uh, suddenly, under the belt line, I'm driving on the left side of the road, and the opposing traffic's driving on my side of the road, and then we go back just like normal on the other side of the belt line. And I just thought, what in the heck just happened right here? Uh, This is... You know, you never think that there are trendy things in road construction. This is a trendy thing. It's called diverging diamond intersection. And there's one person in the room that would know quite a bit about it, Andrew Ritter. Uh, And I will say, Andrew, I was really grumpy when I went to it. I was like, what are they doing? Are they wanting us to just wreck? That's actually what I said. Which which as soon as I knew that, uh, you know, I kind of thought, yeah, whatever. So anyway, a diverging diamond intersection is actually drawn that way on purpose. And what happens is, yeah, you're going, uh, going down Western Boulevard, you get to this light, you, they switch both lanes, so you're now you're driving on the left side of the road, and then you switch back, you know, as if we we're in England, and then now suddenly we're back in America, and we move on. And so I would, I would keep, keep going through this interchange about two or three more times and just grumpy. And, you know, I'd be like, that gum interchange, you know? And I'd start, you know, cussing. What in the heck do they think they're doing? It reminded me of the uh, Christmas story, the dad, you know, that becomes the grumpy old man that has all these obscenities that if you actually look at it, that none of them are actually obscenities. It's brilliant. Uh, so, for example, he'd say, Dad, gummit, poop, flirt, rattle trap, camel flirt, you blonker. 
Uh, in the heat of battle, I too wrote, uh, wove a tapestry of obscenities that as far as we know, it's still hanging over space over Western Boulevard, to quote the movie. I became a grumpy old man. There was a little bit of anxiety and it came out as anger. And today we're gonna talk about a group uh, that become a group of grumpy old men, which is something you never really want to hang around with, but often happens among the people of God. And we're going to talk about that. If you have your Bibles, your apps, open up to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be uh, covering the martyrdom of Stephen. We're actually going through the book of Acts while Jeff Ramsey, our lead pastor, is on sabbatical. And uh, today we get to Acts 6 or 7. By the way, Julie mentioned there's a Bible reading app, U version. Uh, the one on Acts is outstanding. I, I think it's my favorite one so far because you really learn the scripture. And if you want to be a part of that, just email us, info at oakcitychurch.com, and we'll get you signed up. All right. So in honor of God and his word, would you please stand? I'm going to read excerpts from these two chapters, starting about midway through six, ending the chap, uh, chapter six, and then jumping to the end of seven, reading the first verse of eight. When Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, then some those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and of God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. This is the same council Jesus, that tried Jesus uh, months before, called the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for which we have heard him say, that this, Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then he goes unpack the Old Testament in 50 verses. And in verse 51, he gets to his main point, his convicting point. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always... Resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before coming to the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today we're going to talk about this costly change and why change is costly. And then we're going to talk about how serving angry and anxious people is costly, and then why the cost is worth it. So let's talk a little bit about why cost is changing, uh, change is costly. Um, right here in Acts, things are happening fast. Um, after Christ has ascended to heaven, uh, all kinds of Jews in Jerusalem that are rejecting Jesus and his message are losing followers to those that are believing, and it's happening fast. And a group of servants uh, are selected. We later call them deacons because of the word in Greek is deacon. And these servants are supposed to serve some women that are neglected widows that speak the Greek, uh, the same language that Stephen does. And Stephen's one of several of these early deacons that help assist the apostles by making sure justice is ha happening while there is... Um, so that the apostles could keep preaching the word. Now, Stephen is described as a very balanced man. Uh, in the scripture, it describes him as full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He's also described as full of grace and power and full of wisdom and the Spirit. Honestly, the thing that strikes you the most, though, is how the love of Jesus shines on his face. This man is deeply in love with the Lord. Even the Sanhedrin, the same council I mentioned that tried Jesus, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He just had all the right nonverbals. So when we look at this jolting statement later, it's good to keep in mind that he was really had a spirit of love about him. But the Jews were getting anxious because why? They're losing power. They're getting angry because they're losing power. And so they bring false witnesses, and they say, Stephen's speaking out against the temple and the law. You know, when I think about uh, losing power, um, I think first, as a church, sitting here on Sunday morning, that uh, many, many Christians in this country think they're losing power. And they are, especially evangelical uh, Christians. And like the Jews, the so-called people of God, Sometimes we can find out that we're making way too many anxious and angry people as disciples, which shows something's off, especially when you compare it to how um, Stephen is. And one of the things, if not super clear, is that the loss of power is itself something we're used to, not just the worship of God. We have divided and competing beliefs. We love God, but we love our power. We don't want to lose it. As parents, we love our power and don't want to lose it. Uh, my kids, a few years ago, gave me this nameplate that sits in on my desk, grumpy old man. I earned that. <laughs> um, I earned that. Basically what happened was I used to be a cool dad but I became a grumpy old man. And basically what happened was after we thought we raised two perfect kids and we were really cool, we adopted two more, and I got really grumpy because they didn't quite 
obey or do the way, walk the way I wanted them to walk. And a lot of that had to do because of their story and coming out of anxiety. But what would happen is my strong countenance for them to stand and try to get them, to fix them, to get them to obey, uh, would just escalate their fear and it would just get worse. And so I had competing beliefs, basically, what had happened here is I really thought I'm a servant of God, but I also am a good dad. I'm a servant of God, but I also have, know how to make well-behaved kids. And those competing beliefs really ruined the peace in our family. And it really turned into a season of me being anxious and angry, of becoming a grumpy old man. We do this at church. You know, leaders can make decisions that cause you to change, like go on sabbatical. <laughs> uh, or, and we can grumble against that. Or uh, we do that uh, sometimes in our families even more frequently. Parents can make decisions that cause you to change, and it really is frustrating. You can grumble against your parents. Uh, we all do that regardless of our age often. And it's really hard to give honor when we're watching somebody bring change. And sometimes it's not a healthy change. It's that they're off. Sometimes it's that they're on and we're off. And change does need to happen. This happens a lot at work as well. In our companies, you can watch leadership make decisions that causes you to grumble, get anxious and angry because changes are happening. And what is needed in this moment is not so much for you to grumble uh, out of self-interest, but to begin to either work, to conform, to change, to have a conversation, to understand, to seek, to understand what's going on. When Christians say they worship God, and yet they also show that they serve something else, it turns into anxiety and anxiousness. It turns into grumbling. And it could turn into something as simple as what I did at Western Boulevard. Um, it obviously can turn into uh, many of our followers going to the Capitol building on January 6th last year, or even some of those that would go to the Supreme Court justices this week. Um, but this is, the, this is the important part, that we can join even the anxious and angry people and persecute even the best of people. It's in all of us. And so before we start looking at the Jews in this passage as uh, that other religion that's persecuting Christians, let's own up with the fact that we ourselves are the people of God that have competing beliefs. When change happens, we lose power, and it causes anxiety and anger. And what we need in that moment is some people like Stephen that serve anxious and angry people. And let's talk a little bit about how serving anxious and angry people is costly. And that's what we see with Stephen. Stephen serves by speaking the truth of Jesus and demonstrating the grace of Jesus. He does both. And he does a really good job with that. First of all, he speaks the truth. Uh, because remember, he's, he's speaking out in the section we didn't read about his defense of his accusation. The accusation was that he was speaking out against the temple and the law. Well, Stephen actually goes above and beyond and backs up even further in what we now call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and starts to unpack how God was with people no matter where they were. So he talks about the promised land, which they, of course, at Jesus' time know as present-day 
Israel and Palestine. And what he does is he says, listen, God was with the patriarchs in modern-day Iraq, Syria, Israel, and Palestine, but Egypt, and he appeared to them even out in the wilderness in a burning bush. We don't need a place to be able to worship God. And so then he picks up the temple, and he says um, that his that yes, he probably did repeat that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple and change Moses' customs. He probably quoted the Jesus' prophecies about the temple of Jesus' body being destroyed and him building it back up in three days. He may have actually quoted Jesus uh, speaking about the actual physical temple, which was going to be destroyed, and it was after this time at 70 AD by the Romans. It's likely that Stephen would have said, we don't need the Old Testament uh, sacrificial laws at the temple anymore because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was the lamb that atones for our sin, that covers our sin. So like the lamb, Stephen is saying, the temple doesn't save lives. God saves lives, and he can do it from anywhere. Now when it came to the law, he actually stood up for the law and said, we need to obey it. But then, this is what makes him mad, he says, y'all aren't obeying the law. Just like your fathers, you are not obeying the law. You are actually rejecting the things of God. And so he basically brings this up, and uh, that they are, uh, are stiff-necked. You know, it's the idea that you are so angry that you can't move your neck from side to side. You're just, your veins are popping out of your neck. Your, your blood is boiling. You are so angry, and it's evidenced by the opposite of Stephen's face that looks like an angel of God. There's, they are furious. And so Stephen's friends and relatives are flat out addicted to power. And Stephen, by speaking the truth, is a little bit like speaking to uh, an addict, doing an intervention to help say, look, at what you're doing. Look at what you're, how you're behaving. Look at what, uh, look at your sin. Look underneath. You know, and so we have the opportunity when we're told the truth in love to decide to do something about it or not. To change, to quit crumbling, uh, or to continue on. Uh, a couple of months later, I was riding with a road engineer, and uh, I was complaining about the dumb interchange. And uh, he literally said to me, sure, we could do it the old way, but we'd kill more people. <laughs> I was like, what? And he said, yeah, actually, what happens on these on traditional intersections, which Weston originally wasn't, but is what we think about is you have to go, you stop on the other side uh, after you pass the underpass, and then you take a left at the light to get on the on-ramp. But taking a left across opposing traffic is where we have our biggest crashes in fatalities. Is that correct? Okay, you said you'd rebuke me in public. Come on. What are head-on crashes? Or? Okay, so you want to come up here? Okay, I'm going to finish the sentence, and you feel free to correct me, okay? Um, when you switch lanes, you're now on the left side, and you can get on the interstate without having to cross opposing traffic. And that saves 
more light. Is that true? On a scale of 1 to 10, how true is that? Okay, stop then. Because that's all I got. That's as technical as my knowledge on this situation goes, okay? Whew! This is intense. I need to make sure I don't pick illustrations that you guys actually do for a living. Uh, it's a really bad idea. Uh, one of the things it did was stop my grumbling. I understood. I saw it. Stephen's accusers did it. They kept going. It hurt too much. It says that they were enraged. In the Greek, the word is that they were cut in half. Their beliefs of who they're really serving was exposed. And they rush at him. They plug their ears. They take off their garments and they stone him. Now, this is not the new version of stoning. It's the old-fashioned kind, okay? They're picking up rocks, and they're throwing it at Stephen one by one. It's a lot of work to stone somebody. But look at what Stephen does. He doesn't only speak truth. He demonstrates grace. Let me read it to you again. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But he cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their heel, or but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. Now remember, his countenances are the face of the angel. Even though he is speaking very difficult words for them to hear, he still continues to look up to heaven. His response is even to go beyond what you and I would ever think about, any human would normally think about, of being unjustly accused and killed. Uh, he says, forgive them. He calls for grace. So he speaks the truth, but he demonstrates grace. He does both. So how do you serve anxious or angry people through charity? You act like Christ. You love like Christ, speaking the truth and offering grace. Really, the big idea here, though, we need to remember is it costs you something. Serving Christ alone requires costly grace. That's the big idea of this, the whole passage. Serving Christ alone requires costly grace. Now, I'm using that term costly grace on purpose. It was used originally by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he himself being later a martyr uh, from the Nazis. And he opposes costly grace with cheap grace. And he basically says cheap grace is where you receive the gift of salvation, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, rose from the grave, you say you're a Christian, and then you just go right back on living the way you want. That's what it is. You don't really actually follow in the footsteps of Jesus. 
But costly, he means that this sacrifice cost Jesus his life. And it's costly for his followers because we're called to take that same love that we've been given at salvation and to become love, to become like Christ. Voluntarily dying, letting go of power, speaking his truth, demonstrating his grace. So when you receive the gift of the gospel, that's a natural thing to do. When it stops at cheap grace and you do not love like Jesus, something is competing in your head. Some other belief is preventing that. Some form of self-serving unwillingness to sacrifice is what's really going on. Now, I really find it fascinating how Stephen's death compares to Christ. Let me explain some common areas. Both Christ and Stephen were accused by false witnesses. Both Christ and Stephen were tried, convicted, and killed by the same people, the Sanhedrin. Christ said he would destroy the temple, his body, and Stephen apparently had repeated that, that Christ would destroy the temple. Jesus said he'll sit on the right hand of God. In the moment, Stephen sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Uh, Christ prayed for the people that are killing them, prayed for forgiveness, prayed for God to give grace. So did Stephen. And both of them die asking God to receive their spirit. It is clear what a Christ-like service does. And we see it in the person of Stephen, who is serving the last people in the world that he should be serving, his enemies. We need to remember that we are called to love, not to the degree that other people love us, but to the degree that we've been loved by Jesus Christ. So, and I will say that the cost is worth it. Okay, why is the cost worth it? Okay, let's talk about that. What did this cost Stephen? Obviously, it cost his life. Obviously, it unleashed a new season of persecution for the church. Things were not, at the end, better. But was it worth it? If Stephen's ultimate goal was to keep physically alive, then he failed. If Stephen's ultimate goal was to make Christians feel safe, he failed. If Stephen's ultimate goal was to fix the people of God, he failed. But that was not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal was to glorify God, and he did it by having and getting the opportunity to imitate Christ all the way down to his death. It was a win for those who wanted to glorify God. He looks up, he sees Jesus, who's standing in heaven at the right hand of God, standing, not sitting. It's interesting, this is one of the few places where that's mentioned, and usually we're talking about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Now, let me explain first of all the right hand. The right hand was the most important seat. A lot of times we picture a throne, we picture like say, we assume there's going to be three thrones and there's going to be a right and a left. The person in the center of the throne is uh, the most important, right? So we would think probably God the Father in the middle and then Jesus over here and then maybe the Holy Spirit over here, you know, we kind of start doing that. But actually, the right hand was the most prominent place and that's because it comes with the old idea of fighting in battle. And the way the 
uh, Hebrews would line up in battle is typically uh, you would carry your shield on your left hand and your sword on your right hand. So if you think about it, the person on your right hand, half of their shield is covering their body and half is covering your body. And that's why your right hand man is really the key person. What we see here about the right hand man Jesus is he's standing in approval of what Stephen is doing. He approves them. He endorses them. He advocates. And in the middle of that, Stephen gets to see not the glory of God, but also the fact that God himself fully approves of Stephen. It's a beautiful picture. So we need to ask ourselves, what is Jesus looking for from us? He's not looking for you and I to convert or to fix, or to change others. That's his job. It's not your job to change other people. It's not your job to change your kids. It's not your job to change your parents. It's not your job to uh, change your coworkers or your church. When we try to fix these people to control the outcome and get them where we think is better, it actually requires those people in our lives to have a big, take a bigger sacrifice for us because we're determined that we know what to do, where to take this story, where to take you, and how do you get to, to a place of change. We put them in a position where they are having to speak the truth to us, having to demonstrate grace when we don't deserve it. Speaking the truth and showing his grace is the way to go. And I would encourage you to love like Christ and leave the results of your obedience to Christ. Love like Christ and leave the results of your obedience to Christ. Yes, Christ, God uses Christ-like people. We know this because it's love. He uses that to spread the power of the gospel. Absolutely. And we see the rest of Acts. Your death won't be in vain. My death to self won't be in vain. If you're living for God, other people will see Jesus and God will use it to set them free. But that's his choice and that's his job. You look up. You look at Christ alone. You are only responsible for trusting in Christ to save you from your sin and becoming like him by speaking the truth and showing grace. As big of a cost this is to the followers of Jesus, who does the event cost more? Followers of Jesus speak the truth and demonstrate grace, but they, and they lose their personal power, but they do it to empower others. Those with competing beliefs try to control or fix the outcome, sooner or later get to the place where they won't listen to the truth and ultimately become hateful towards the very people that are actually doing good, that they lose everything. So sometimes this early grumbling that you and I would have is an indication we're about to lose it all if we keep insisting on our own way. The last contrast I want to bring up here is Saul. He is contrasted to Jesus who's standing at the right hand of God. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul approved of their persecution. You've got a leader approving of Stephen, You've got another leader approving of 
the persecuting uh, accusers. And that's Saul, who later is called what? Paul. A couple of weeks, we're going to learn a little bit more about this, and we're going to study this. I, when I, years ago, I was reading Galatians 1.10, and his words that are a lot of the same similar words here uh, in Galatians 1.10, written uh, decades after this moment with Stephen, just struck me. And this is it, Galatians 1.10. Paul writes, later after being radically saved and renamed by Jesus, For am I now seeking the approval of man? Or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul was an enemy of God because he believed before Jesus in God and his power, the power of his group. And it turned him to a persecutor. He lost it all, but Jesus remade him. And then later on, he starts talking about Whose approval do we live for? God or others? Back in 2017, uh, this verse really changed my, my life. Um, I had mentioned before that we had eight years of really difficult times and me being a grumpy old man. And I started to notice that I had definitely made a lot of mistakes. And I started to move from the idea in my mind that I'd made mistakes to I am a mistake, which is self-rejection. And self-rejection is a, is a hard lie to get out of because no matter how much people tell you you are loved, you won't believe them because you've already made up your mind about yourself, about your worth, about your value. And so uh, it catches you, that self-rejection catches you in a toxic chain. You just stay there because you're not just serving God, you're serving uh, a voice, you're pleasing man, and this particular man is yourself. And so I would read it again. Let me read it again. For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I realized that I was trying to please all the people that said I was falling apart. And I was. And I couldn't do it. I was also realizing I was disapproving of myself and that voice was really in charge of my life. And what I would do is I started to ask, who really has authority? Whose word has authority over me? And I would uh, chose to take every thought captive and every time I would notice that I would start getting depressed over me being a mistake, I would say, who has authority over my life? In fact, several times I went and got my Bible and picked it up and put it over my head. It says, whose word has authority over my life? Am I approved by God or man? And I would catch those lies and started saying, I'm going to choose to believe that God says and means what he says, that I am loved. And it totally changed my narrative. And I started becoming less grumpy. I started becoming less anxious. It still happens, obviously, uh, quite a bit. But it became less of the thing that was driving me because those competing beliefs had been sawed in half, exposed, and the pleasing of men started to come down while the pleasing and living for God started to come up. You're responsible to serve Christ alone, not to fix people. That's God's job. Now, God will use a person like Christ, but nobody wants you to be Christ. 
And we all want you to be like Christ, but we don't want you to be Christ. We don't want you to pretend like you're our Savior. Uh, And so I want to challenge you today, before you walk out, after we sing, before we walk out those doors, um, to own up if you need to own up. If you've got some competing beliefs that are vying for your attention, I want you to say, before you walk out those doors, Lord, help crucify these lies, these competing beliefs that is preventing me from serving you and walking with you with the twists and turns of my journey as you see fit. Um, perhaps you, somebody has come to mind that you're trying to fix or control. I'd love for you, before you walked out, Uh, those doors at the end of our service for you to say, you know what? I'm going to serve Christ alone. And that means I'm going to give this person grace. Or if there's something you've been avoiding telling them truth, that you make a commitment and pray for God for the opportunity to share that truth with them. Now be really clear. Let's be really clear. Christianity is costly. Serving Christ alone requires costly grace. And choosing to become powerless like Christ is choosing to empower others when it's done by speaking truth and love. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the example of Stephen and the example that he lays in front of us that is striking about the same person, Jesus, that died in a very similar way. Thank you for such a clear illustration of what love looks like. And thank you, Father, that we don't pray to Stephen to save us. We pray for Jesus to save us because he died once and for all. Thank you so much that he has covered our sin. Give us the attention in our minds, the awareness in our minds to be able to serve Christ alone. In Jesus' name. Uh, We do check these Connect cards where we see that uh, if you're new here or if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. You can fill it out or put it on the app. And then also, we would love for you to participate in communion and come and to serve uh, communion with us today uh, to be able to share with us uh, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he is living. Pray this So we welcome in the next few uh, songs to be able to join us with that.